He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Please turn your Bibles with me to John chapter 20. Turn there. Just a special welcome to those of you who may be visiting with us for the first time this morning. We're so excited to have you, and thank you for worshiping with us this morning on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke as a church family on Sunday mornings. This morning we're going to take a little bit of a break from Luke and turn over to the Gospel of John and look at the resurrection story in the Gospel of John, John chapter 20. And we'll be looking uh, really at the whole chapter, but focusing especially on the last two verses and kind of looking at some of the other uh, events that John records in this gospel this morning. And so if you please, if you're able to this morning, uh, stand with me in honor of God's word. We're going to read some portions from John chapter 20 together this morning. John chapter 20, I'm reading from a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version. Verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came in, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Verses 11 through 18 describe Jesus' interaction with Mary Magdalene. Then we come to verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And then we have the story of Jesus' interaction with, G with uh, Thomas, in verses 24 through 29. And then verse 30, we read, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You may be seated and may be encouraged and strengthened through God's word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are just so grateful this morning for Resurrection Sunday as we contemplate the life of your son, Jesus Christ, his death in our place, his resurrection. And, and Father, we, we pray for our church that we would be a church that worships you through our faith in your son, Jesus. We pray for the different needs that are here this morning. We just uh, also this morning pray for the 
the health of, of Jesse, who wasn't feeling well earlier, and we pray that you would just uh, strengthen her as well. We pray that we as a church would worship you in spirit and in truth this morning. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. When Whitney and I were new parents, right after Hannah was born, like all good parents, we were constantly holding our little girl. And like all good, new, slightly paranoid parents, we were holding her all that we could, and and when we had to set her down, we were constantly holding the baby monitor. We would go into the kitchen, and we would take the baby monitor with us. We'd go into the living room, and we'd take the baby monitor with us. We'd go out to the grocery store on a date, and we would take that baby monitor with us because we were such good parents. Well, you can imagine our surprise one evening whenever Hannah was a few months old. We began to hear voices coming from that baby monitor, conversation through that baby monitor, and we were slightly perplexed. We knew our daughter was advanced, but uh, we didn't think that she was that advanced, and we realized that we were hearing voices coming from our neighbor's home that were coming through that baby monitor, and then we really listened carefully uh, to that baby monitor found out fascinating things about our neighbors. No, we didn't do that, but we did listen carefully to that baby monitor at times, and sometimes there would be this this crying coming from the baby monitor. We'd go into Hannah's nursery and realize, oh, that wasn't our daughter, that was our neighbor's baby crying. And we had to listen very carefully to distinguish who that crying was for. Sometimes I think that people come in on an Easter Sunday and listen to the sermon the same way that Whitney and I kind of listened to that baby monitor, not quite sure who that message is really supposed to be for. Maybe you're a regular attender to our church, you come here every Sunday and you're saying, okay, today we're talking about the resurrection, believing in Jesus Christ. I've already done that. This must be a message for the visitors. Or maybe you're a visitor this morning, you're saying, okay, uh, this isn't the normal place that I worship on a Sunday morning, maybe I don't even have a church, Uh, I'm going to listen, but I'm pretty sure this message is for my neighbor. I hope this really impacts him or her. If you have your Bibles open to John chapter 20, I want you to look at the last two verses, and if you need help turning there, John is is the fourth book in the New Testament. And I want to read these last two verses in John chapter 20. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter kind of quickly, but really focusing on these two verses. And listen to what John says as he talks about his gospel that he's written here. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. In other words, Jesus did a whole bunch of things that demonstrate his power that demonstrated his authority, that demonstrated his his deity. There's a lot of things that Jesus did that I didn't include in this account of his life. And so the question is, what was John's criteria for putting one story in and leaving another story out? Well, listen to what he says next. He says in verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What criteria did John use to decide what to include and what to leave out? Two things. One, he says, first, these things I've written so that 
One, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and then related to that, number two, as you believe that, that you would have life in his name. I've written these things so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and as you believe that, that you would have eternal life, life in his name. Now, here's the question. Who is the you? When he says, I've written so that you may believe, who is he talking to? Is he talking to people that lived 2,000 years ago? Yes. Is he talking to people who've never accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior? Yes. Is he talking to people who are already believers? Yes. Let me suggest to you this morning that when he says, these things I've written to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that you may have life in his name, that is a message that applies to every single person in this room this morning. It applies to you if you've never entered into a relationship with God at all. Maybe you've been separated from God, you recognize you have no relationship with God. John has written these things to you So that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and as you believe that, you would have life in his name. John has selected these things that he's written, especially these last stories in chapter 20 about the resurrection. He's included those in his gospel so that you could understand Jesus' life. The resurrection makes all the rest of his life make sense. That you would understand Jesus' life and believe in him, place your trust in him, and as you do that, you would have life in his name. It's also written to those of you who are young people. Maybe you're 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, and and mom and dad have told you stories about Jesus. You've heard them in your Sunday school class, and, and you haven't denied that they're true. But these things are written for you, too, so that you can understand that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And as you believe that, you would have eternal life. These things are written to those of you who are teenagers or young adults, and maybe you've entered a a time in your life where you said, you know, I I believe the things that my parents had had taught me before. I've entered this, this rough period of life, and I'm not sure about some things now. These things are written to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and as you believe that, you would have eternal life, life in his name. These things are written to those of you who are a little bit older, and maybe you are a genuine believer, you still need to continue in the faith. In fact, maybe there have been some things in your life that have caused you to to doubt. Maybe there have, maybe there haven't, but whatever the case, you need to listen to what John has written here, be confirmed in your belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and as you believe that, have life in his name. What I want to do in our time together is go through chapter 20 and look at some of the things that John has included in his account of Jesus' resurrection. And as we look at these things that John has included in his account of the resurrection, I want you to be assured of the reality of the resurrection. And as you're assured of the reality of the resurrection and the person of Jesus Christ, that the purpose of John's gospel would be fulfilled. You would be encouraged You would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And as you believe, you would have life, eternal life in him. Eternal life means not just reaching heaven someday, but eternal life is something that affects our here and now. And every person in this room 
needs to experience the life of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Not a single person in here, not a single person in here is immune from needing to hear that message. Let's look first of all at verses 1 through 10. John includes each of these stories to strengthen us in our faith in Jesus. Let's look first of all quickly at at verses 1 through 10. What we're going to see here is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, number one, the resurrection of Jesus Christ assures us that God has a sovereign plan to bring us life. Number one, the resurrection of Jesus Christ assures us that God has a sovereign plan to bring us life. One of the most fundamental questions of life is, of course, is there a God? Related to that most fundamental of all questions is another very fundamental question, and the question is, if there is a God, does he have a plan for my life? And perhaps as you think about the world, you realize the world is a very big place. There are a lot of people in the world, and you and I are very small individuals in a very big world. But not only is the world a big place, our solar system is a very large place. Our galaxy is a gigantic place, and our universe is a place the size that just boggles the mind. It's almost beyond comprehension how vast our universe is, and a very obvious struggle that I think people have sometimes as they think about the vastness of the universe, the vastness of the human race, the question that people struggle with is, okay, let's assume that there is a God behind the vastness of this universe. Is a God that massive concerned with me? Is he aware of me and who I am? As I look at all the people just in this room, it's boggling to think about him being aware of me, but as I think about the vastness of the universe, that's beyond comprehension. Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ assures us that there is a sovereign God who stands over the entire created realm, but is also mindful of us. What do I mean? Look at the text. It tells us in verse 1 that Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb, and John is kind of uh, summing up a lot that is, is dealt with in more detail in the other Gospels. She sees that Jesus has been taken from the tomb. She runs and she tells Simon, and it says here in verse 2, Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And that's referring to John, who wrote this gospel. John refers to himself kind of in the third person here as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He doesn't mention himself by name in this gospel account. She goes and she tells them, verse 2, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter goes out, and he goes with John, And it says, verse 4, both of them start going to the tomb. Both of them are running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. Kind of a funny thing for John to mention here. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And if you didn't get it there, he mentions in verse 8, the other disciple, the one who got there first. Now, is, is Peter trying to, is John trying to brag a little bit here? No, I don't think so. I think John is remembering in detail the most incredible moment of his life, the most momentous event of his life. And he's kind of replaying in his mind what happens. He's saying, Peter and I were both running to the tomb. I get there first, and he says, I I, I stooped in, and I I looked, and I saw the linen cloths lying there, but I didn't go in. It's like uh, John was frozen there. He, He couldn't go in and actually see what had happened. Peter, we know Peter has no such compulsion. He just runs right in. He goes in, and what does he see? He sees more than John does. 
he see the, sees the linen cloths lying there, and then he sees the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. In other words, it didn't look like some grave robber had come in and kind of scattered everything around. Things are, are orderly. Something's taken place here. And John says, then I went in, the other disciple goes in, and he sees what Peter sees. And how did he respond? He says he responded with belief. He believed. Then verse 9 tells us that yet, even though he believed, they didn't yet understand the scripture. And then this is the phrase that I want us to think about. That he must rise from the dead. That Jesus Christ must rise from the dead. What does that mean that Jesus Christ had to rise from the dead? Why did the scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ had to rise from the dead? Romans 4 kind of gives us some insight here. In Romans chapter 4, Paul is talking about faith and belief and how faith is counted to us as righteousness from God. In verse 24 he says, faith will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised, that is, his resurrection was for our justification, for being declared righteous before God. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not some accidental event. As we think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we realize God is not some cosmic being that is off in some other corner of the universe concerned about other things. The resurrection of Jesus Christ shows us that there is out there a sovereign God who stands over the entire created realm, yes, but is also mindful of you and me and is fulfilling his promise to bring us life. In Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world. And at the end of the chapter, it's something interesting takes place. God sets two angels to guard the tree of life so that humanity can't eat of that tree of life and live forever. Why does God choose to do that? Because God wants us to be able to die so that we won't live with sin forever and that we can have these resurrected bodies and we can experience renewed relationship with him. The resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us that that plan is on track. God's plan is being carried through to its fulfillment. In fact, if you have your Bibles and the ability to do so, keep your finger there in John chapter 20 and turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is in the Old Testament. If you turn to the book of Psalms, it's, it's after the book of Psalms, Proverbs. It's right after the book of Song of Solomon. And Isaiah 46 we see something interesting about God. Yesterday I was at a funeral. I had the, the privilege of presiding over a funeral of a, a great-grandmother, grandmother, mother of some people in, in this church. And I was riding over from the funeral to the cemetery with one of the people who worked at the funeral home, and we were talking about the different ways that people honor the dead and the different types of funerals that people have had. And he said something interesting. He said, well, a lot of people kind of try to approach God in a, in a variety of ways. And I said, I, I agree with that. I believe that people try to reach God in a variety of ways, but I think sometimes as they do that, they're, they're practicing idolatry, right? We have this desire to kind of create God in our own image, and, and so we fashion this God, and we try to reach that God in this way, and we have this kind of God, and we try to reach him in this way. Isaiah 46 tells us something interesting about the character of God, who he is, 
and what separates him from every false conception of God. In Isaiah 46, verse 9, God says, last half of verse 9, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. And what's one of the characteristics characteristics of God that distinguishes him from false gods. He says in verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God, from before the beginning of time, looks into the future and says, this is what's going to take place. And as God, he not only knows what's going to take place, but he can say, my counsel shall not fail. What I desire to accomplish will be accomplished. In fact, you look a few chapters earlier than Isaiah 46. In Isaiah 43, we see that part of God's sovereign plan is our redemption. In Isaiah 43, verse 1, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Our redemption by God is part of his preordained plan. Verse 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. The resurrection of Jesus Christ assures you and it assures me that God has this sovereign plan. And your redemption, God bringing you life, is part of God's sovereign plan. And you know it's part of God's sovereign plan because Isaiah 43, 7 tells us it's part of his plan to to fill the universe with his glory. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is included here by John so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and in believing that have life in his name. And the fact that God has a sovereign plan, the resurrection confirms that it causes us to have deeper faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. The second story we see here in verses 11 through 18, and the second thing we look at here is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ assures us that we have hope in Christ. Number two, the resurrection of Jesus Christ assures us that we have hope in Christ. As I mentioned yesterday, I was at this funeral, and we, after the funeral, we went to the, the graveyard, and we did the, the uh, graveside service. And I don't know if you ever do this, but, but being in a cemetery, sometimes I just look out at all the tombstones and all the grave markers. And it's kind of a little overwhelming to think about all these people who have lived and died. And you look at some of the dates on the grave markers and you realize these people lived and died before I even existed. And, and their whole lives were lived w- without me in them. Can you imagine that? Uh, and, and you just think about the, the, the finality of life. And you, you think about the person that you're committing to the ground until the resurrection. You're thinking, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice to be able to to talk to them? Wouldn't it be nice for someone beyond the grave to to come back and say, hey, it's all cool, figured it all out, things are good? In fact, at the turn of the 20th century, in the 1900s, there were two very famous people, Harry Houdini, that famous escape artist, and 
Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was a famous writer. He wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories. And both of these men lost people who were very dear to them. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle lost a son, and Harry Houdini lost his mother. And, and both of them were very interested with, in, with spiritual things. And they decided to investigate the occult world and spiritualists. And both of them kind of came to different conclusions. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle believed in these spiritualists and these mediums and, and that they, these people could talk to the dead. Harry Houdini became very skeptical, and he exposed many of them as, as, as frauds. In fact, his exposing these people as frauds led their, his friendship with Doyle to kind of sour, and they, they parted ways. But what's interesting is that even Houdini and his skepticism maintained this desire for it to be true. In fact, he told his wife, Bess, he said, look, when I die, I'm going to do everything I can to reach you. And you'll know that it's me because I'm going to utter the words through the medium or whatever, Rosabelle believed. Even Houdini desired this to be true, even though he fought so hard to expose these people as frauds. As you look at verses 11 through 18, John includes these verses, I believe, to continue to give us hope, to cause us to believe in Jesus, to cause us to have life in his name as we believe in Jesus. He tells us the story of Jesus' appearance to Mary Magdalene. Now, if you remember Mary Magdalene, she was the person in Luke 8 who had these seven demonic spirits. Her life was in shambles before she met Jesus Christ. She loved Jesus Christ dearly, and you can imagine as she considers Christ's death, it's particularly painful for her. As she thinks about the reality of the things that he's done in her life, the changes that she's wrought, and she has to wonder, okay, is, is this all there, there is? is? Is this person who changed my life gone forever? And here's what happens. She is looking for Jesus. In verse 15, Jesus appears to her and he said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she thought it was the gardener and she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Now, kind of an interesting idea there. Here's Mary Magdalene, this, this idea that she's going to carry this, this corpse around, uh, but that's her plan. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, apparently as she says this, she, she falls down and, and grabs his feet. In verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. Do not hold on to me. I, I've not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. As we see the resurrected Lord we recognize that he's the same and yet very, very different. He's in this new body, no longer constrained by the frailties of this current earthly body that you and I have. He's in a resurrected, a glorified body. And as we see Jesus Christ here, the first fruits of the resurrection, there is an element of hope that you and I receive. Mary Magdalene receives it. You and I receive it as John includes it in his gospel account of the story of Jesus' resurrection. Life is so, so brief and so short. The funeral yesterday was for a woman who was 90 years old, but as we were talking there at the, the graveside, someone mentioned a, an infant that they had lost, and someone else mentioned the, the grandfather they had lost a few years earlier, and someone else mentioned a, a person in their, their middle ages who had passed away. Life, be it for 90 minutes, 90 seconds, 90 years, 100 years, is so, so very brief. 
as we contemplate the brevity of our own lives, the brevity of our children's lives, the brevity of our friends' lives, there's a, a feeling of, of dread, I think, that's natural for a person to feel. How does this story help us? It helps us as we receive assurance that we can have hope in Christ. These things are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and believe and have life in his name. Thirdly, the third assurance that we have in these verses, the resurrection of Jesus Christ assures us that we can be forgiven. We see this in verses 19 through 23. The resurrection of Jesus Christ assures us that we can be forgiven. It's very interesting. I think sometimes different people respond different ways to the reality that we're all sinners. Sometimes a person, when confronted with their sin, the fact that that God is holy and perfect and just, and and you and I aren't, sometimes our tendency is to to try to, to do good things. As we contemplate the fact that yeah, God has a sovereign plan, and, and yeah, there's going to be this resurrection, and we can have hope in Christ. We, we say, but how am I going to be prepared to participate in that resurrection? How can I be assured that, that when the, you know, the final call comes, I make the cut? And sometimes we can say, I'm going to work really, really hard, and I'm going to try to do a lot of good things so that on that day, when I stand before God, I have like this resume I can pull out and say, hey, God, I'm How can I get into heaven? I'm glad you asked. Let me just kind of share a couple things I've done with you. Or maybe we hope, look, my hope is that whenever I'm standing in line to get to heaven, I'm standing like next to a mass murderer or something. And so God will look at the mass murderer and look at me and go, "Uh, you're out, you're in. You know, thank goodness I'm not standing next to like my grandmother or something. That's some people's plan to get to heaven. Perhaps do enough good things. What happens here in the text? What happens in the text? Jesus appears to his disciples, and he says, he appears before them. They're in this locked room. He appears, and he says, peace be with you. He (laughs) said this, and he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples are rejoicing, and then Jesus says something very interesting. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit, he says, as he breathes on them. And then verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And, and what is he saying here? He's not saying that like the, the disciples have some supernatural power to like forgive you, not forgive you, forgive you, not forgive you. What he's saying is, as you proclaim this message of peace and tell people about me, people, as they respond to that message, are going to be forgiven or not forgiven. The resurrection of Jesus Christ says that his earthly ministry has been completed. He has achieved the atonement for our sins. And now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ assures us that forgiveness is possible. And I believe this very sincerely. I believe that there are people in this room this morning, believers and unbelievers, who are struggling in the area of needing forgiveness. Maybe you've never had a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and you're contemplating the things you've done. You said, you know, the the things that I've done, maybe I haven't thought they're so bad before, but as I contemplate the holiness of God, the otherness of God, I don't really see this working out. I've been committed to a lifestyle that's, that's so contrary to the things of God, I don't understand how forgiveness is possible. The resurrection of Jesus Christ says the atoning work of God 
for your sins has been completed, and now life is possible, forgiveness is possible through belief in Jesus Christ. But this isn't an issue that just people who've never placed their faith in Jesus Christ struggle with. I think there are things that you've done, even if you're a believer, I think there are things you've done to your family, there are things you've done in the workplace, there are things you've done to your friends that that cause you sometimes to, to wonder about the forgiveness of God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ says the payment for sin has been, has been paid. It's over. It's complete. The time of punishment for sin is over. The time for new life has begun. And a person receives the forgiveness of God by placing their faith in Jesus Christ, the proclamation of that message. The last story in the resurrection we see is the story of Jesus and Thomas. It begins in, in verse 24, and as we look at this story, what we see is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ assures us that our faith is not in vain. The resurrection of Jesus Christ assures us that our faith is not in vain. I don't know where you are in your spiritual life this morning, but I know that sometimes the temptation of the human heart is to place requirements on God before it's willing to believe. In other words, a person says, uh, okay, I, I hear this story in the, in the gospel account, and I, I understand what it says I need to do. I need to believe in Jesus, but God, here, here's what I'd like you to do. God, I, I would like you to give me this job, and once you give me this job, then I'll know that you're real, and I know that, that you're real, and, and, and then I'll believe in you. Or you say, God, I have this, this problem with, with my uh, spouse, and, and if you can solve this problem with my spouse, I know that you're real, and, and then I'll believe on you. Or, or God, uh, I don't understand why there are so many different uh, religions, and if you would just kind of like, like put a big dot over the right religion on this page, then I'll, and it's Christianity, then I'll believe in Jesus. Or, or God, if you'll heal my sick friend, then I'll know that you're real, and then I'll believe in Jesus. In other words, over and over again, we say, this is the criteria. The criteria is X for me to believe in Jesus. Once God, the sovereign uni- God of the universe, does X, then I'll believe. That's what Thomas does here in verses 24 through 29. Thomas has these people that are, the other 12 are are saying, look, we've seen him. We know that he's resurrected. And Thomas's response reveals something very important. The issue is not the quality of the evidence. The issue is the condition of our hearts. In other words, you and I don't need more evidence that Jesus has resurrected from the dead. What we need is a change of heart. No matter what God did, no matter what sign you desired God to do in order for you to truly believe, let me assure you, apart from a change of heart, it would not be sufficient for you. There would always be something more, something else, something different you wanted God to do. The condition of our heart is the true issue. Thomas receives these, these confirmed reports that Jesus has been risen from the dead. He says, look, I refuse to believe it unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. I will never believe 
In other words, this is the only criteria by which I will believe. Nothing else will satisfy me. A very foolish thing to say. But fortunately for Thomas, that's exactly what happens. Verse 27, Jesus appears and he tells Thomas to do those things. Then verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says some words that should be very encouraging to each of us. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then John says those two verses. Jesus has done many other things, but these are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believe and have life in his name. This message is for believers, it's for unbelievers. The story of the resurrection John has included because it is the event that highlights the deity of Christ. The work of Jesus Christ in paying for our sins has been completed and now new life is possible. I'm so grateful that God has brought each of us in here this morning to worship him. And no matter what place in life you're at, you need confirmation. You need continued faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of you, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the writer of Hebrews says, today is the day of salvation. And my prayer for you this week has been that you would recognize, okay, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real. It, it assures me that there's a sovereign God. It assures me that he has a plan for my life. It, it assures me that there's, there's hope. It assures me that forgiveness is possible. And it, it encourages me that my faith is not in vain and that my prayer for you this week has been that you would place your faith in Jesus Christ and for the first time would receive God's eternal life. But for the believer, for the believer, I know that there are struggles with doubt and questions of living according to our faith. And my prayer for you this week has been that you would receive God's message of eternal life that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have eternal life in his name. You know, the story of the resurrection, believing in Jesus Christ is, is not some, some well that the, the thirsty person can go to and, and only one time drink from. The, the story of the resurrection, belief in Jesus Christ, is this, this living water that the person can come to and, and exhausted and thirsty can drink from from the first time and find nourishment and refreshment. And it's also the well that the person can continue to come to over and over and over again and experience the life that is possible through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for the life that is possible through faith in Jesus. We pray that you would be working in our hearts this morning. For those who are struggling with doubts, who have made a profession of faith and are wondering if they're going to continue in the faith, Father, please strengthen them through the story of the resurrection this morning. And for those whose faith has never existed in you, we pray that you, your spirit would, would ignite within them a desire to place their trust in your son, Jesus Christ, alone for the forgiveness of their sins. We pray this in the matchless name of your son, Jesus. Amen.